Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We aren't really living unless we're hearing from God. Amen? 1 John chapter 4. We'll read verse 1 to verse 6. Beloved, 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 believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, Lord, you are so amazing. You are so powerful and mighty and worthy of all praise. And Lord, too often our understanding and vision of you is too small. And I just pray that this morning, God, you would cause our eyes to be lifted up and cause us to be able to see your glory this morning. Help us to see you, Lord. Help us to be filled with all the fullness of God this morning. Help us to understand this passage that we read. Give us new insight into the things, God, that you want us to see. Nourish us this morning and cause us to leave here changed people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we've been talking a lot in 1 John about loving the brethren. And we're not done with that topic either. But... Sometimes if we focus so much on our love for the brethren, and we've been talking a lot about that, right? Uh, one of the tests, one of the ways you know that you believe the gospel is that you love the brethren, John says. Because some people question whether they really believe. Some people question whether they really have faith. John gives you a simple test. Well, do you love the brethren? Do you love those who are righteous through faith? Or do you hate those who are righteous through faith? It's a very simple test. What kind of thoughts come up into your heart when you think of those who are righteous through faith? And we've been focusing on that. But sometimes when we focus on what we do or our love, we can forget about God's love for us. John has, throughout the letter of 1 John, addressed us in this way. And look with me to verse 1. John calls us what? What does he, what does he entitle the Christians? Beloved. That's a synonym for a Christian. Beloved. You, today, this morning, are beloved. Isn't it good to know that you're loved? And who are you loved by? You're loved by God. And
And recently I was talking with a dear friend of mine, and my friend was a little troubled. She, she said, you know, sometimes I, I, I can think that God loves all the world universally and he loves all people, but it's sometimes hard to understand that he loves me individually. Have you ever thought that way? Have you ever felt that, I know that God loves everybody and he's got this general love for all people, but that kind of makes me just loved corporately in a sense. I'm not loved individually. I'm not loved uniquely. I'm just loved because I'm part of the world which God loves. And beloved, God loves you individually. He doesn't just love you because you're a cog in the big wheel called the world and he loves this machine called the world. But God loves you individually as a person. You remember when Paul, the apostle, he was describing the universal experience of a Christian. He says, I am crucified with Christ. This is something that every Christian can say. He's just simply saying it himself for us to hear. But we can take his words and apply it to ourselves. He says, I'm crucified with Christ. And I don't live anymore, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. You see how individual Paul made it for himself? How he understood that the love of Christ was for him individually, who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that this morning? Do you have that same conviction this morning that God loved you and gave himself for you? For Wallace. He actually loved Wallace, not just the world that Wallace was a part of, but Wallace and gave himself on the cross for you, Wallace. Isn't that amazing? John the Apostle, in the Gospel of John, he says the disciple that Jesus loved, right? So he's making that very personal for himself. John says, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. Now John is not saying that Jesus only loved me. I'm the only one that Jesus loved. But when he says, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved, he's profoundly aware of the unique love that Jesus had for him as an individual person. Can you say that this morning, that I'm a disciple I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. Me. Not that he doesn't love you, but he loves me. Specially and uniquely. In Revelation, we find that God will give us a new name when we get to heaven. Each individual person. I don't know exactly. That's kind of odd for us. What's that going to mean? But I don't know. But when we get to heaven, God will give you personally a new name. It'll sum you up. It'll describe you. In a sense, like a pet name for the one you love. Yeah, and just special for you. Isn't that amazing? Just think about that for a moment. When you get to heaven, God will give you a new name that describes you, sums you up perfectly. It's you. And he recognizes you. Isn't that beautiful? Didn't Jesus say he calls each one by name, each sheep? So he loves his flock, but he also loves each sheep individually. This doesn't mean that God loves you more or less. It just means that God loves you uniquely. Isn't that a wonderful thought? So, beloved, remember that God loves you. Now, last week, or two weeks ago, when I was last speaking, we looked at a verse at the end of chapter 3. Would you look there with me? John, for the first time, explicitly mentions the Spirit. 
For the first time, he explicitly mentions the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that he hasn't mentioned it before. John mentions the the Holy Spirit implicitly in chapter 2 when he talks about the anointing that we have from the Holy One. But here he explicitly names the Holy Spirit. And in verse 24 he says, Hereby we know that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given us. And John now, from this statement, moves into this next section that we just read in chapter 4. John's going to discuss this topic of the Spirit. John does not leave the things that he's been saying. What has he been saying? I write this that you might have joy. It's through simple faith in the gospel that you're saved and it can have assurance of your salvation. And if you need to know that you believe, then just simply look and see if you love. But it's all pointing to the same thing. Simple faith in Christ. And when John uh, adds, it seems, throughout this letter, adds new passages and new concepts, he's not leaving the simplicity of what he's been saying the whole letter. The simplicity of what he's saying is, through simple faith you can have joy and assurance of your salvation. It's like a diamond. You hold it up, as is often said, and you can look at it from different angles. And John is about to look at the same phenomenon. Simple faith in Christ brings assurance from a different angle. Now he's going to introduce the Spirit. He's going to look at it from the angle of the Spirit. Not a new thought. Not a new doctrine. Just another angle to look at the same doctrine. You can have confidence that you are saved. You can have confidence that you're one of God's. You can have confidence that God dwells in you and you in Him because you can see that the Spirit has been given to you. That's what he's saying. So we're going to look at that in this next passage. What does that mean exactly? So this stirs up in John's mind. He's going to explain it, and it also stirs up in his mind a a warning or an alert for Christians. Let's read verse 1. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every spirit. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. So John mentions two things here. He says, don't believe every spirit because many false prophets. He mentions spirit and he mentions false prophets. These these two things work together. The spirit and false prophets. There's a spirit behind false prophets. There's a spirit behind true prophets. The apostles aren't the only ones who have a message for us. First John, it's all about a message that the apostles have for us, isn't it? The gospel message. But John is saying here, I want you to know that we apostles aren't the only ones who have a message for you. There's also many false prophets. Now, when was that said? When did John write this? He wrote it in the first century, right? If there were many false prophets in the first century when Christianity was just starting, how much more do you think there are many false prophets now in the 21st century? Think about that. If there's one word that can be associated with false prophets, it's the word many. Right? Every time Jesus talks about false prophets, the word many is there. Every time Paul talks about false prophets, the word many is there. And John also says many false prophets. And so he's encouraging us to have a healthy skepticism. Believe not every one who comes and tells you something. Isn't that skepticism? Gullibility is you just believe whatever someone says, right? Someone comes to you and says something and you just believe it. I heard a funny one the other day that if you say gullible 
after gullible, 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 it'll sound like orange. If you say gullible really fast, <laughs> which of course it doesn't. <laughs> See, Susan? <laughs> Healthy skepticism. <laughs> He wants us to have a healthy skepticism because he's saying, look, we aren't the only ones who have a message. There's people that are coming, false prophets, who come in another spirit, and you need to be able to discern the spirit of the false prophets. Is it the spirit of God? Is it the Holy Spirit? Or is it a spirit of the enemy, a spirit of the devil? An evil spirit, a false spirit, a lying spirit. Which is it? So what are we to look for? He tells us to test the spirits to try the spirits. The word in the Greek means to, to test it to see if it's genuine. To test something to see if it's genuine, the genuineness of something. If you've flown before in the airport and you come to the security, they take your card. Has anyone ever had this experience? They take your driver's license and they shine a light over it. Have you ever seen that? They're testing the genuineness of your, of your card because on that card, little, that little um, can we see, there's these seals on it that can only be seen under a certain kind of light. And they test the genuineness of your card. So you approach them, you give it to them, and they test. So this is the way we're to think about it when someone comes to you with a message. And they give you a message. Just take that message, shine that little light over it, and what are we to look for? How do we know if something is genuine? How do we know if a, if a, a prophet's message is genuine? Now notice what John does not say. Notice he doesn't say, beloved, test the spirits, and here's how you test them. Um, whoever has the most supernatural miracles wins. He doesn't appeal to supernatural experiences to know whether the spirit is of truth or the spirit is of error, does he? And that's not because there's no such thing as supernatural experiences. Satan counterfeits supernatural experiences, doesn't he? One of the early lessons we learn in the Bible is that when God performs miracles, Satan performs counterfeit miracles, right? So you remember Moses, and he lays down his stick to prove that God has sent him, and it turns into a snake, and then what do the false magicians do? They mimic that very same thing. But then Moses' snake eats up theirs, right? So... All that is supernatural or spiritual or, have, or is experiential is not necessarily of God. There's a, it has been said, uh, this simple equation, something may be supernatural and not of God. Something may be natural and of God. What I mean by supernatural is an obviously unusual supernatural experience. But what if uh, there's something that's not obviously supernatural? Does that mean it's not of God? Doesn't God work through normal means all the time. And something may be supernatural and of God, but the point is, just because it's an experiential, odd, unusual thing doesn't mean it's true. Now here in Utah, we have uh, many people that say, you test the truthfulness of our doctrine by a supernatural experience that you can have. Is that not, is that not the case? How do you know if, if our book is true? How do you know if our message is true? They say, well, pray about it. And if you get this experience then you know it's true. Now, can't Satan counterfeit an experience? Of course he can. And John does not point to supernatural experiences to prove whether a doctrine is true. Right? 
to believe that on the basis of an experience like that is foolish. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1, he says, if even an angel from heaven shows up, an angel, now I've never seen an angel before, but if an angel showed up and taught me, what? Another gospel. Let, Let him be accursed. What? What is the equation? Experience proves doctrine or doctrine proves experience? The doctrine proves the experience true. Test what the angel says. Does the angel bring the gospel, the true gospel? What's his content? And if it's not the gospel, let that angel be accursed. That's an angelic experience. That's one of the strongest statements in the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, God tells the people that if a prophet performs a miracle and yet teaches you to follow other gods, you stone that prophet. Even if he performs a miracle, you stone that prophet. What is the important thing, the miracle or the content? It's the content. And so the same thing we say today, we don't test the spirits by how cool their miracles and phenomena can be. Now, I believe that the devil is limited in what he can do. But nonetheless, people seem to flock towards that which promises a supernatural experience or even delivers one. John points us not to these things. Another thing John does not point us to to test the message of the false prophets is he doesn't bring up in any way the works of the false prophets or the good works. He doesn't say, you know, if a prophet comes to you with a message, you just follow him around for a few days and find out if he does enough charity works and if he gives his money to the poor and if he's not cussing and swearing and if he's got a nice disposition about him, then you know that it's true. He didn't say that, does he? John is in the same mindset of Jesus who said, wolves come to you in sheep's clothing. That means they look like sheep. They even try to act like sheep. And you can't tell whether it's a wolf by simply looking at it and seeing how it behaves. That's not how you can find out whether something is false or not. Not by their works. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Satan actually transforms his servants into ministers of evil. No. Into ministers or servants of righteousness. Think about that for a moment. Satan sends you messengers as messengers of, quote, quote, righteousness. Why do we think that Satan's just going to come along without any disguises? And what's his favorite disguise? Righteousness is his favorite disguise. He comes along and he says, I am all about righteousness. I'm all about doing the right thing. I'm all about not sinning. I'm all about holiness. I'm all about God and his law. All about that. Believe me. John does not point us to that. Paul does not point us to that. Jesus does not point us to that. Because that will deceive you and fool you. Praise God that they have given us a true way to discern the false prophets. Because if it was simply up to supernatural experiences and good works, do you know how confused we'd all be? Think about it for a moment. We'd find a lot of teachers fitting the bill, wouldn't we? 
Now, what does John point to? Very clear. Verse 2 and 3. He points to their message or their confession. And John is in keeping with Jesus, who after he talks about false teachers, he points to their words. And you can read about that in Matthew chapter 12. I encourage you to do that for homework. John and Jesus point to the message, the confession of the false prophets. What do they profess? What do they confess? What do they say? What's their message? What's their gospel? This is how we test. Is this the first thing that you think of when someone comes to you? Now, notice how specific John is. He says this. I'm going to read 2 and 3. Now, hereby we know the Spirit of God. Here's how you know if the Spirit of God is behind this messenger. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. Pretty simple, it seems, right? What's it all about? He specifically points us to one's doctrine of Christ, or in a fancy sort of sense, their Christology. What is their Christology? What is their doctrine of Christ? What do they have to say about Jesus Christ? That's what he points us to. A false Christology always is inseparable with a false gospel. Always. If you have a false view of Christ, then you have a false gospel. I don't know about you, but when you meet someone who has a false gospel, let's say you you meet someone and you talk to them, and they start telling you, you know, the good news about Jesus, but it's completely not what the Bible teaches. It's not about Christ's death on the cross. It's not about him taking our sins so that we could be saved as a gift. It's not about faith in Christ. It's not about salvation by grace. You almost always find, or I should say you always find, a false Christology as well, don't you? They don't believe the same thing about Jesus. In Psalm 118, verse 22, it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the, head of the corner, right? It's talking about Jesus now. The point is, is that Jesus is either your savior or the greatest stumbling block to your damnation. What you do with Jesus will determine whether you are eternally saved or eternally damned. What you do with Jesus. Isn't that amazing? If you stumble at this stumbling if you stumble at this stone, you stumble to your own damnation. But if you believe on him in truth, he is your savior. Isn't that amazing? Most commentators and most expositors see in this reference, in this expression of John, he says, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, if you confess that. Most commentators see in that only a reference to the deity and incarnation of Christ. So what I mean by that is, they think what John is saying is, if you believe that God became flesh, God put on flesh and was incarnated, then you're of God. 
And they basically limit what John is saying simply to the incarnation of God. They'll say, yeah, all these false professors, all these false prophets, they don't believe that Jesus is divine. They don't believe that Jesus is God. And I agree with them that if you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you're going to have a false gospel and you would fit the bill here. But that it's more than this. That's true. To deny the incarnation, to deny that God became a man and that in Jesus is fully God and fully man would fit the bill here. But it's more than that, brothers and sisters. This expression, if you confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is simply, it's more than simply saying that God became incarnate. Do you believe that? Think about it for a moment. Otherwise, false prophets themselves would hide behind this very passage. Now, I don't know about you, but I know, I have people in my, I have people that I know, friends of mine, who fully believe that God was incarnate. And they fully believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And yet, they're not Christians. You're thinking, well, what? (laughs) Can you think of anyone that you know? Maybe not personally, but can you think of anyone? Can you believe that Jesus is God and yet not believe the gospel? Can you believe that Jesus is God and yet believe that the gospel is all about your works? To believe that the gospel is not about grace? And yet you believe fully in the incarnation. Is that not possible? I'm thinking about the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is one of the fiercest defenders of the incarnation and that God became a man in Jesus. And yet, the gospel of the Roman Catholic Church is not about grace. It's not about salvation as a free gift. There's all these works that you have to do, isn't there? And so John is talking about something that's true. Yes, incarnation. Yes, Jesus became God. But more than simply that. Otherwise, one could just say, I believe that Jesus became God, so I am of God. Accept me. What we need to understand is that this confession that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is loaded with meaning. Let me say that again. The confession that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is loaded with meaning. And let me try to impact that for us this morning. The word confess means, well, here's what the Greek word is, homologio. It means to say the same thing. Homo, logio. To speak the same thing as God. To agree with God. To confess as God also has said about Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. And one thing we need to learn is that the authors of the, New, the, the apostles, the authors of the letters in the New Testament, when they use words, they use words filled with meaning. They fill words with meaning. When you hear the, the expression Jesus Christ, what do you think of? How deep does the meaning of that expression go for you? Jesus Christ. John says, if you profess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, then you're of God. How deep is that for you? Is that as shallow as just simply 
a, a denomination, a name? Jesus Christ? Or do you see that when John says Jesus Christ, he's filling that with detail and theology and meaning? First of all, when he says Jesus, he's filling that with the details of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The Jesus that he's referring to is the Jesus of history, is the Jesus of the Gospels, is the Jesus who, who lived and who died and who rose again. That, so when he says Jesus, that's what he's meaning. And when he says Christ, he's filling that also with the details of what the Christ or the Messiah is all about. Jesus Christ. He's not just saying, yeah, the one that was promised to come. That's pretty shallow. He's saying the one was, that was promised to come and everything that that means and entails and signifies. The apostles fill their words with meaning. And when you put Jesus and Christ together, you have one heavy expression that isn't lightly professed. Do you believe that? For example, in the book of Acts, they say, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Now, is that saying not packed with meaning? Can you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ without believing the details? What if you come up with your own interpretation of the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, I definitely believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Is that the same as believing in the Lord Jesus Christ the way the apostles are telling the person to believe? No, it's not. Say, which Jesus Christ are you talking about? This one, this is the one I'm talking about. When I say you confess that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh, I'm talking about this Jesus. Not that Jesus. Not the one that you make up. The one, I'm just packing this with meaning. I'm not opening the whole thing up right now, but this is what I'm talking about. When I say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm, I'm meaning this. I mean, believe that he died for you, that he rose from the dead, that he offers salvation to you freely. That's the Jesus I'm talking about. And if I ask you, what Jesus are you talking about? And you say something different. I say, no, that's not, it's not the Jesus I'm talking about. You're not really believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. No, no, that's not the Jesus that I'm talking about. You're not really confessing that he came in the flesh. You're talking about someone different. I don't know that one. But this is the Jesus I'm talking about. It's filled with meaning. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John makes a big deal about this coming in the flesh, doesn't he? When John says coming in the flesh in 1 John chapter 4, we've got a lot of stuff in all the writings of John to think about. John says, if you confess, if you speak the same thing as God, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that should make us think, oh, that makes me think of another passage in John's writings. John chapter 1. This is what is in John's mind when he thinks about Jesus coming in the flesh. Now, I want to read the first 18 verses in John 1, and I want you to notice that the, the expression... Jesus Christ doesn't show up until verse 17. And when it shows up, in that title, it sums up everything that he has just said. I want you to notice that, okay? 
In the first 18 verses, John is talking about Jesus Christ. But he doesn't name who he's talking about until verse 17, which sums up everything that he's been talking about. So notice, now think of this. Confessing that Jesus Christ came in the, in the flesh. Here's what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word, now here's, here's an important verse in connection with the confession. And the word that he's been talking about was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. This is the Jesus Christ we're talking about. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses. And here's the first time he names who he's talking about. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son. There's a new expression he introduces to describe what he's been talking about, which is in the bosom of the Father. He, he, not anyone else, but who I've been describing, declares him. To confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is to confess what we just read. The word that was with God in the beginning became flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, the only begotten Son who reveals who the Father is. It's packed with meaning. So if someone says, well, I believe in Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, but it, it, Jesus isn't a God. Or yeah, Jesus is a God, but he's not full of grace and truth. Well, he's full of truth, but not grace. Yeah, he's got some grace in there. We're talking about somebody different here. I'm talking about Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. You're talking about another Jesus Christ that came in the flesh. I don't know about that one. Do you see? Turn with me back to 1 John. And the same is introduced at the beginning of the letter, which we've read before. 1 John chapter 1. It's just like John chapter 1. We're talking about Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. John describes Jesus Christ here in the flesh because he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, seen, looked upon, and handled. He's talking about Jesus Christ in the flesh. We're touching him, we're seeing him, we're listening to him. We're looking upon him. This is who we're talking about, Jesus Christ, and the life that is in him. The life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and is manifested unto us. 
So to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is exceedingly rich. It's not just saying that, oh, this Jesus character is, is God in the flesh. It's talking about incarnation, but it's more than that. It's talking about Jesus, God incarnate, revealing the Father by who he is and what he's done. The point of the incarnation, the purpose of the incarnation, the revelation of the incarnation, what the incarnation teaches us about God through this one, and not merely that he was incarnate. Make sense? How can you confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh if you have a false view of Jesus Christ? How can you do that? You miss the whole point of what John is saying. To confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is to confess that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God, who put on flesh to reveal to us the Father, full of grace and truth, through the gospel. That's the confession. Antichrist, he mentions, does not profess this. The fact that he mentions in the opposite here, in verse 3, Antichrist points the focus to Christ. This one who doesn't confess, this is anti-Christ. He's against Christ. He's against the Messiah and the revelation of God through the Messiah. And hereby we know. So how do you test a spirit? How do you test a false prophet? What do they say about Christ? What do they say about Jesus Christ? And it's bigger and richer than merely affirming his deity. What do they say about the incarnate God? Make sense? Hereby we know. And in verse 4 he says, You are of God. Now John encourages us here. He says, if you're, a, if you're a believer in Christ, and he's writing to those who he has full confidence in that they are, you are of God, little children, and you have overcome them. We overcome the false teachers. How? Because you are great. Is that what he says? He didn't say because greater are you than greater than the false prophets. He says because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The, the good news here is that there are many false prophets in the world, but true Christians overcome them because they're of God. And the Holy Spirit, whom he's been talking about, he's been describing, now John brings it back to the Spirit, is in you, and because the Spirit is in you, you overcome. So there's a wonderful security here for every believer in Jesus. Yes, we have to do our battle, but we can be confident that the victory is assured because it's not us. It's God. There's a psalm in the Old Testament that Israel would pronounce, unless the Lord was with us, right? If it had not been for God, we would have been consumed. And every Christian can truly say that too. Were it not for the Lord being with us, we wouldn't have overcome. And this is how you know that you have the Spirit or not. 
So John wants to encourage you. You know that God abides in you because you have the Spirit. How do you know that you have the Spirit? How do you know? Because you overcome these false teachers. The Spirit manifests itself in you, not subjectively. John is not saying, you know that you have the Spirit. How do you know? Go into a corner of a room, close your eyes, turn off the lights, meditate, and maybe you'll feel some vibes. You know that you have the Spirit because of your confession. You know that you have been given the Spirit because of your confession. Without the Spirit, you couldn't confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He's encouraging you here. He's not moving away from simple faith, is he? He's just showing you something. If you've got simple faith, it's because you've got the Spirit. Without the Spirit, you would not have this simple faith. You know that you have the Spirit because of your confession, because you agree with God concerning what God says about his Son. On the opposite hand, those devoid of the Spirit, in verse 5, are not of God. They are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world hears them. They listen to these false teachers. They don't listen to the apostles. They don't listen to God. They speak the same language of the world. What the world says makes sense to them. What these false teachers say is it is comprehensible to them because they're speaking the same language. When a Christian or an apostle comes along and shares the gospel, that doesn't make sense. They don't speak that language. It's not comprehensible. What does the scripture say? The preaching of the cross is to those who perish. What's the big word? Foolishness. They don't get it. They're not, you're not speaking in my language. The preaching of the cross is foolishness. That whole message about Jesus being full of grace and truth and dying on the cross and, and saving us by grace doesn't make sense. But this false message makes sense to me. On the other hand, for us, what is the preaching of the cross? To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If the preaching of the cross, which hopefully you've been hearing, is the power of God to you. If that clicks with you and you say, yes, that is the power of God unto salvation. That is the wisdom of God. That's the only way to be saved. That makes sense. That is good, wise, powerful, amazing. If it's not foolishness to you, then you can know this, that you've been given the Spirit. Isn't that good news? You don't have to go chasing after things, do you, in Christianity? It's all there for you. Christianity, as we've said, it's not about trying to acquire things. It's about resting and enjoying what you have in Christ. You've been given the Spirit. Verse 6. We are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. Very simple. The Father sent Christ into the world Christ sent the apostles into the world. Christ represents the Father, reveals to us who the Father is. The apostles represent Christ. They reveal to us who Christ is so that we might know who the Father is. The apostolic testimony of Jesus is how we know who Jesus is, how we know who the Christ is. And we, 
fit into that in this way. We are to faithfully communicate and pass on the apostolic message. What did the apostles say about Jesus? That's what we pass on. And, okay, what does, then we learn what Jesus says about the Father. And we know the Father through that. It's that simple. And if someone doesn't hear you, it's because they don't have the Spirit. They're not of God. That is, if we're communicating the truth in love. Some people will say, well, if anyone rejects me, it's their own fault. Sometimes it's our fault, right? There's a, a, a famous story by an old English preacher in the 1700s named Roland Hill. And he often, he would tell this story to uh, some seminary graduates who are going to be preachers. He would say, there was once this preacher in town, and he was also a barber. There was a preacher who was a barber. He was a pastor in a local parish, but he also on the side cut people's hair. And one time, one of his parishioners came to his barber shop saying, I need a wig. And so the pastor said, okay, well, come to the right place and we'll hook you up. And so they, he made for him a wig, but he made it very poorly. He made it very poorly. And he charged him double for it, over what it should have been charged. And the man bought the wig. He didn't like it. He didn't like the price. He knew he was being swindled, but he bought the wig. And he continued to go to the church. And as he sat in church, every time the pastor would say something good, he'd go, that's a really good point. But oh, the wig. Oh, that wig. <laughs> and like everything that the pastor said couldn't get through because that wig was obstructing. And he was, being, he was remembering that he was swindled by that pastor. So sometimes, sometimes the lesson is sometimes people don't hear us because of our sins, of our faults, because we're not, um, repro- we're not blameless in their sight. You know, we have reproach. But if we do speak the truth in love, if they have no reason to shut their ears and they reject the gospel, it's because they don't have the Spirit. Very simple equation. Not because they're not as smart as you are, but because they don't have the Spirit. So in closing, if you believe the gospel, brothers and sisters, if the message of the cross is the power of God and makes sense to you, then rejoice with joyful assurance and know that you have the Spirit and he will be with you forever and he will see you to the end. You will overcome the world. In fact, it's so certain that God even puts it this way, you have overcome the world. If you believe the gospel, do you, is, this, is not, this is good news, isn't it? Do you realize what I'm telling you this morning? If this morning you believe the gospel, then you can rejoice with joyful assurance. You can know that you have the Spirit, and you can know that you'll be seen to the very end if you believe the gospel this morning. That simple. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that wonderful comfort? It's so simple. But if you don't believe the gospel, then believe this day. Understand that you're a sinner Understand that God is your judge. You're going to meet God on Judgment Day. And if you're not trusting in what Christ did for you, and that alone, 
then you will go to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. You'll go to hell if you die not believing in Jesus. Because you're a sinner and sin is going to be punished by God. And don't think that you're a good person. Don't think that you can escape that judgment through your own works. You aren't good enough. So why wait? Believe in the gospel. Put your full hope in Christ and be saved. And then you too can rejoice with joyful assurance. Let's pray.